what I keep talking about is that sex can also be turquoise with a hint of ochre with a little green. You know, you can, if you're having loving touch and intimacy, then that's beautiful. We don't have to be chasing orgasms every single night when we, when we start to have sex. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Consider it self-improvement that doesn't take itself too seriously. Thanks for being here. Hello and welcome, fellow human. Happy Thursday. I hope you're having a tremendous week so far. And before I get started, thank you to everyone who's been subscribing to my show on iTunes and leaving ratings and reviews. Those ratings and reviews, as you know, are really, really helpful. But more than that, they're, they're also just really encouraging to me as a podcaster trying to get his new show off the ground. So thanks to everyone who's been leaving some love in the comments or rating and reviewing my show on iTunes. Today, I'm sharing with you one of the most raw and real uh, interviews I think I've ever done. My guest today is a woman named Isabel Lozada. Isabel has worked as an actress, a singer, a dancer, a researcher, a TV producer, a broadcaster, a public speaker, a comedian, and finally, an author. And she's a damn good author, too. I wanted to, to talk to Isabel today because she's written a book called Sensation, Adventures in Sex, Love, and Laughter. I read this book several months ago, and it had a really profound impact on me, and I really think it's one of the best books about sex that I've come across, and I've read, I've read a lot of them. Sex is uh, probably the most interesting thing in the world to me, sex and women and relationships, and Isabel has written a really important book here. In the book Sensation, Isabel basically plunges headfirst into exploring every different type of sex and sexuality and what's possible uh, in sex in long-term relationships. As written on her website, on behalf of all women, slightly terrified, beginning with a women's workshop where she has to get naked, Isabel journeys through the first international conference of clitoral stroking, is informed of 11 different forms of orgasm, 10 of which she hasn't had, endures National Health Service Kegel exercises and mystical sensations with tantric masters. If that sounds like a lot of fun, uh, it is a lot of fun. It's a, it's a really fun read, and I got a lot out of it. In today's interview, Isabel and I discuss all of those things. We talk about how to have better sex in long-term relationships. We talk about what a lot of men get wrong about having sex with women and having great sex with women. We talk about what women get wrong. We talk about body shaming and, and uh, you know, messed up body images. We talk about some embarrassing personal stories. This is the kind of podcast that I, I kind of envisioned when I was, you know, putting together this show. The kind of podcast that's kind of exhilarating and a little frightening to launch at the same time. So I hope you get a lot out of it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And uh, I'm really excited to share this one with you. Before we get started, I won't bother you with ads and announcements during the conversation itself. But if you have a free 30 seconds, please take a minute to be sure to subscribe and to rate and review Humans in Love on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews and subscriptions are very, very helpful to me. Without any further ado, I present to you the author of Sensation, Isabel Lozada.
So, the first thing I'd like to talk to you about, I'd, I'd like to, to know more about, is I was on your website and I was scanning through your public events. It seems like you've been hosting a lot of public events around your book, Sensation. Just tell me a little bit about what you've been doing with that and what, what the vibe is like at those events. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I've been amazed on the whole about the reactions to talking about sex in the UK and talking about sex in general. I mean, you, you'd really think it was the 1950s. Um, <laughs> there, is, there is enormous fear around the subject. And I mean, there's major media outlets that I've, that I've done media on before and radio programs I've been on where the host has said, you know, you're great, you can come back anytime. And then when my publicist approached them about this, they went, no, not on this subject. And there's bookshops where I've spoken to and spoken to absolute packed out audiences and made everybody laugh for an hour and a half. And then the bookshop has said to me, no, we're not having you on this subject. So there is a not because there, there, there's just an incredible amount of fear around this subject. Um, and so um, that I mean, that that really is the first thing to say that people have lots of reasons for not wanting to talk about the subject. Having said that, when I've actually when I actually do events, the way that I do them is I just talk from the, you know, from the stage for half an hour or an hour, an hour and a half or two hours or however long I'm invited to talk for. And then I take a, I take a, a question and answer anonymously. So everybody writes their questions down on a, on a card and then I turn them over and I just have them write male or female for M or F on the card. And then I answer the questions saying, you know, Mark from Manchester would like to know this or Susan from Sweden would like to know this. And of course that's funny because everyone knows the person's right there in the audience. But in that way, they can ask whatever they like and they're not identified. So I'm doing, so the short answer to your question is I'm doing the events rather as one would have imagined uh, an event talking about sexuality in a public place would have happened in about 1957. It's that bad out there. Do you think this is a, a specifically UK thing? Because I wonder it, how it would be different if you were giving these events, for example, in America. Um, I don't really have a sense of that. I think some aspects of America obviously would be more open and some would be less open. But as I say, uh, ironically, because my book is specifically, I mean, I'm heterosexual, so I can only talk about um, you know, sex from my own perspective. So the book is very heteronormative. And then I'm talking about sex in a long term monogamous relationship or marriage. So in theory, my book is a book that, you know, a Trump supporting Republicans should support or could support, because it's about, you know, deepening and enriching uh, monogamous relationships. Have there been any recurring questions you see that, that seem to be coming up over and over again at these events? I talk a lot about in, in the book about um, a practice called orgasmic meditation, which is a practice that's specifically geared towards understanding female arousal and female pleasure. And of course, there's always a man in the audience that says, you know, when do we get the male version of this? When, a, when, a, you know, <laughs> I, I, right. and, I, and I always reply, look, Mark from Manchester, 
men have been getting far more pleasure in sex, in a sex, you know, in bed and in sexuality for about 500 years. And frankly, a little bit of study of female arousal and female pleasure is long overdue. So please go and study female arousal for about the next five years and then come back to me and then I'll tell you about the male version. That's great. Mark from Manchester, so selfish. <laughs> well, you know, I'm surprised. You know, there are lots of things out there that um, I, I think would be of interest. And in fact, one of the lovely things about this book is it has been read, I'm happy to say, by a lot of men. I mean, it's a book about the female perspective on sexuality. So, you know, you'd think that a heterosexual man would, would want to put his focus on learning how to please women. And so, you know, I always say that to the, you know, to the men in the audience, like this is a book about learning how to make love to women. Come on, guys. Well, I mean, what happened? What happened to the male brain? I mean, when did a love of football and rugby and the stock exchange and all the other things that men seem to be more interested in take over from the process of how to, you know, how to seduce a woman, how to make love to a woman, how to court a woman, how to enjoy a woman? You know, I mean, obviously, the whole that there's been a lot, the whole gender divide in the last 50 years hasn't really helped but you, but you really feel that the sexes we don't really take pleasure in each other as much as we could anymore you know what I mean in just a celebratory way I absolutely know what you mean and this has been a mystery to me for a long time and I'm not trying to hold myself up as some paragon of male sexual virtue or something like that or some you know masterful ladies man but I adore women and I adore sex. And for my entire adult life, I feel like I've invested a lot of time and energy into learning how to get better at it. I mean, I've read books, I've gone to classes, yes. oh, but, but, but here's, here's my question because to me, women and sex are just about the most interesting, wonderful thing in the world. Why don't, why don't more men want to learn about sex? I don't, I don't really know the answer. Is it simply the male ego that thinks that we're too good to be learning about it. We're already these these masterful lovers. Like, what's your take on that? Why do you think it's it's sometimes a tough sell for men to learn to get better in bed? It, that's a really interesting question. And and even on the couples workshops that I do, it's always the women that have invited the men to come along. Um, I mean, yes, I think there is this myth, isn't there, that a man should just know what to do, um, which has been made worse by the whole viagra you know all the emails that you poor guys get every day telling you that you've got to be you know longer harder stronger etc etc and that you know specifically if your penis doesn't stand up for hours on end you know for the with the least provocation or invitation then there's obviously something wrong with you <laughs> you know um so i i think there's a lot of Fear. I think a lot of men are made to feel inadequate in the way that women have been made to feel adequate, inadequate by the, you know, by the magazines and by the whole body image thing for a long time. So I think there's that. And then there's, and then there's a certain shame around that if a man isn't able to perform that way. Um, and that's, I think it's hard for a man. I think there's an assumption that if a man is in a, is, is in a class or a workshop learning about how to please a woman, that he's 
that he's, you know, that he's admitting that he's failing in the normal ways, which, of course, isn't absolutely not true. He could be learning to enrich and broaden his um, ways to to arouse his woman. I mean, you know, just because if a man is in a tantra workshop, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with his sexuality. On the contrary. But I think that maybe that's an assumption. And then I think. Obviously, that yes, the whole macho male thing that I mean, you know, why would the, the stereotype of a macho male need to learn anything from someone else, least of all a, a woman that he's not met? I mean, God forbid. So I think you have to a man has to be prepared to overcome that in order to say, well, actually, how does the clitoris work? I don't understand this. And I mean, my partner at the beginning of the book, for example, uh, claimed that he knew everything about sex. You know, he, he's 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 had you know he's been married, he's had children, he's had a couple of other lovers. I mean, he 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 literally he said, but I but I'm I already know everything. And I laughed at him and said, well, let's see. <laughs> right, that's and a good answer. Then, you know, and then by the end of the book, he was he was kind enough to say, well, yes, at the beginning, I knew everything. And I'm happy to say that, that at the end of the book, I know a little less. You know, Absolutely. he had a little bit he had a little bit more humility by the end of the book because he realized uh, the broad. And of course, m- women make it worse because women are very codependent, obviously. And so women make a lot. There's a lot of moaning and thrashing going on by women that is not authentic women in order women want to send signals to their male lovers to reassure them that they're doing a good job and so i'm not even if they're not faking orgasms which obviously a lot of women do but even if they're not doing that there is a lot of exaggerating the level of pleasure in order to make the man feel good because it's quite hard for a woman to say to a man when we enter the pe- the penetrative part of our lovemaking the sensation levels in my body go down, not up. They're not actually, I mean, I, I know it's going up for you, but it's actually going down for me. I was having more pleasure when what we were doing 10 minutes ago. Now, it's, so some of those things are, are, so women are not often not giving authentic signals to men. So men are left with a false perception of the amount of sensation in her body that the woman's actually experiencing often. That's, that's uh-huh. such an, a crucial point. And I remember early on in your book, there's a passage where you talk about exactly that, why it's so, so important for both women and men, for women to be actually honest and, and forthright about their experiences of sex. I mean, that was a very, very, very important point. What, what would you suggest to a man or men who want to encourage their partner to not feel the need to perform? Is it simply about communication and and being honest with them and saying, you know, I want to know genuine, I genuinely want to know what feels good for you. Don't worry about, you know, the performance aspect of it. Mm -hmm. It's tricky, right? It's a tricky conversation to have, especially I think with a new lover, because implicit in that is that, you know, I think you're performing for me and maybe she's not, right? It's tricky. It it is tricky. It is tricky. And I think one of the reasons it's tricky is because both men and women have a lot of insecurity around this area and and in a new relationship especially a woman is wanting to reassure a man that she's a good lover and he's wanting to reassure her that he's a good lover and so they both in a sense are, are trying to impress the other one that the sex is okay especially if they've met someone that they really like and they want it to work for 
Um, and so I think there's a, I think there's a question of security here. I think in order for a woman to be able to to to, to, to speak honestly, uh, she would have to feel that there was a, a certain level of commitment from the man, because you know it, it would be very tempting for a woman. If a woman, for example, I take I take workshops for women, and I have if I have ten women in a workshop, I will often say, okay, women. Fess up now. How many of you have had an orgasm through an orgasm through penetration alone? And to be fair, there's usually one woman in the group that will say she has, and then the other nine of them will look round amazed because they thought they were the only one that was broken, and the other nine were, you know, were able to do that. But if a woman in a new relationship is is for a woman in a new relationship to say, actually. I've never had an orgasm during penetration or, or, or through penetrative sex. She would be afraid that the man would think, well, she doesn't work. I'll go and get myself another lover that, you know, that I can give more pleasure to. Because obviously men like to give pleasure to women. Uh, they, like to, they like to give a woman satisfaction. They like to make a woman orgasm. That's, that's an enjoyable you know, thing for a man to be able to do for a woman. So if they meet a woman who has difficulty with that, then... Th it's hard for the woman not to feel that that's an, an inadequacy on her part. Um, and so she would be tempted to hide that inadequacy or at least uh, to an extent where she could do that without actually lying. So she, she would try and avoid faking an orgasm, but she would say, so, it's a, so I would say, it, yes, it is a difficult conversation, and I think it requires a level of trust in the other person and it requires a level of honesty. And I think one way in which it can be achieved, uh, and I'm not just touting my book here, but if one's in a long term relationship, what, what I'm suggesting in the book is that um, one takes a year, people each that. The, the, the reader takes a year and really commits to deepening and enriching and broadening the sexual experience. So if you're going on a sexual journey with that, with that person in order to increase the range of activity, of sexual activities that you're doing um, and deepening them, then you, then it becomes, the conversation is more opened up. Right. But, but I think it's, and it's certainly easier outside a sexual context. I mean, like when I, I was married for seven years and when I, when I was, when I was first married, I was married very young and my, and my husband used to say to me, what do you want me to do for you in bed? And I could never understand why I hated that question. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to work out because it sounds like the right question, doesn't it? It sounds like the man is trying to please you. How can I please you? What do you want me to do for you? But for one thing, I had no idea. I, just, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to answer it. And then he would look frustrated because I didn't know how to answer it. But and then there was a hook. I always felt there was a hook in the question, because if I'd said, oh, please do this or please do that, then the assumption was, well, then I'm going to do that really well. And then you're going, oh, no, boy, you're going to be aroused then. And I couldn't necessarily produce the reaction that he was hoping that I might do if he did the activity that I'd then asked for. So, <laughs> so it was a disaster. So I became uh, like many quite 
articulate women that speak on stages. I can speak all over the world. Give me 3,000 people in a stage and I'm happy. But give me one man in a bed asking me to communicate in a <laughs> sexual context. Which is why I was so grateful for one of the processes in the, that I describe in the book where the man is asking questions and all I have to say is yes or no. Would you like a little bit more pressure? Yes. Would you like me to move a little faster? Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes and no, I could manage. <laughs> I could say those things. Right. And, and but, in terms of men uh, or men asking questions about, you know, their woman's pleasure. I think it's yes. really a really good idea to be to frame it a little more specifically, like you just talked about. Like, do you want a little more pressure? Do you want a little less? Um, do you like it better when I do this as as opposed to that? Because I think if you ask a woman, does that feel good? She's uh, she's feeling pressure to just say yes, right? Because she doesn't want to disappoint you. Where Absolutely. If where if you're a little Absolutely. more specific, you get on. if you're if you're a little more specific, you get feedback that you can actually. It's actually useful, you know, and that, that yes. is more likely to be honest, I think. Yes, absolutely. That's, that, that's very good. And asking those and, and considering those things, like what are the questions that I'm going to be able to ask that are going to be easy for her to answer? And what are the questions that are going to put her in a difficult position? That, that, you know, those are, very, that's, those are very good considerations for a man to, to, to consider. Yes. Absolutely. I'd like to know, speaking a little more personally, uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about how your thoughts and views on sex have changed over the past, you know, couple of years or whatever that you've been involved in writing and promoting this book. Because you said in another interview that you were afraid of writing about sex before, and we talked, we touched on fear earlier in this interview. What do you think you were afraid of? Was it simply just having awkward conversations with strangers like me or, or what, what was it? What, what, oh, what no, I'm no, no, I'm absolutely not afraid of, of talking about sexuality at all, sex or sexuality. No, I know exactly what I was afraid of. I was afraid of the publishing industry. I was afraid of the judgment. I was afraid of the assumptions. And I have hit assumptions again and again and again. I mean, because I'm writing about sex in the first person, I mean, first of all, in Britain, we don't have, as, as in America, the, the tradition of writing narrative nonfiction in the first person is a lot stronger. Over here, we have very little narrative nonfiction in the first person. So it's fine to write erotica because that's made up. And it's fine to write a how-to book because that's sort of scientific instructional. But actually saying, this is what happened to me when I was having sex with this person and this is how it was made better. Obviously, I just look like a crazy egocentric nutcase that wants to write about my sex life and tell everybody about it. <laughs> and, and, and I can understand people making that assumption and a lot of people have made that assumption who, of course, haven't read the book. But, oh, Isabel Asada. I mean, one publishing company for whom I had previously sold 100,000 books wrote back to me saying oh, well, you have been having an interesting time, haven't you? But this certainly isn't anything that any of our editors would be interested in. Hmm. Now, that was, that was what I was afraid of. Just complete judgment before, condemnation before examination. That's what I was, that's what I was afraid of. And if, you, if you're going to put yourself out there and say, sex needs talking about, 
somebody's going to shoot you down. And, and specifically with this issue, I mean, I get, I get shot down from both sides. I mean, I get shot down from the MBS world, the mind-body-spirit world, because I've previously written a lot of books about spirituality. Like, I'm the person that has sat down and interviewed the Dalai Lama and written about Buddhism and Christianity and women becoming nuns. So for me, suddenly now to be writing about sex, I, I look as if I've gone mad or lost my head or I'm having some kind of midlife crisis or nervous breakdown or something. And then from the other side, from the sex scene... I'm look. I'm fantastically vanilla because I'm just talking about sex between in a monogamous couple. So from the sex world, you know, I'm too safe, and from the mind, body, spirit world, I'm I've gone mad. So I was afraid of the judgments on all sides, but not of of speaking openly and honestly about the subject itself. Has the response to the book surprised you? I'm not sure what I would describe as the as the response to the book because the responses have, have been so varied yes yes I mean one of the things I mean in purely the book is the response to the book has been wonderful by the people that have read it as I've said and I've had the most astoundingly wonderful letters two of which I'll just mention I had a, I had a wonderful letter from a, a young man in the military who'd heard me on a different podcast which had opened up you know, a different sort of audience. And he'd gone away and he'd read the book and he wrote to me and he said, I've never had sex. He was 23 or something. And he said, um, but I'd like to thank you on behalf of all my future girlfriends and my future wife. And, and you know, and which books on sex do you think I should read next? And so I sent him a little list and I'm thinking, oh my God, there's a man out there that's actually going to be thinking, you know, he, he's going to have an educated approach to a woman rather than just, you know, what he's seen in some porn flick and then I had another wonderful letter from a woman who was 68 and she wrote to me that at the menopause at 50 she'd had a lot of emotional and physical and spiritual difficulties at the menopause and as a result had not wanted to have sex with her husband anymore and 18 years had gone by and she heard one of my interviews on Woman's Hour. And then as a result, she went out and bought the book. And then she, as a result of reading the book, she was able to open up the conversation with her husband. She had him read the book too. And then they discussed it. And then she's got her intimate life back, um, which she says is fantastically enriching, for their, obviously, for their relationship. So when I think of the response to the book, I, where my focus is is on the impact specifically in the sexual life of the reader and of the couples. I think of it, you know, that's really what I'm writing for. Hmm. Um, I'm not writing, you know, commercially, it's been, a, it's been a difficult one because this is England and people are, he are hesitant to give. I mean, I did a wonderful series of lovely quotes from the book, some me and some the wonderful spiritual teachers. For example, there's a quote from Nicole Daydon in the book, men, slow the fuck down. Mm. Now, I thought that was funny for someone who's been teaching sexuality for 30 years to sum up all her teachings and slow the fuck down. So I produced this beautiful image that was very lovely, just of an arm or something. And I wrote men, slow the fuck down, Nicole Daydon. I thought this would be widely shared because I thought it was funny and relevant and witty, you know, a little bit quirky. But people are very afraid to share things to do with sex on social media because, uh, as someone said to me on Facebook, but my mother's on here, you know, or, or my ex is on here or my husband's on here. And if I talk about this, then he might perceive it that I'm critical of him. And, and so then we get back to fear again. 
and so it's difficult for I mean not always some some women go out they buy 10 copies for their girlfriends and that's fantastic but it's a but it's a tricky subject because I'm being real you see something like 50 shades of gray that was easy for people to read because it was fantasy and oh isn't this a bit you know isn't this a bit of a laugh and they all bought it but 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 if you talk about the lack of sensation in the woman's body that touches on people's fears and anxieties that doesn't and of course the book is funny so it is so the, so you see there've been many different reactions to the to the book right so that's you you mentioned something in your podcast with Russell Brand that I found really provocative and it gave me pause at one point you were talking about sting of sting in the police fame and yes. and you mentioned that um, something to the effect that, you know, Sting is big into Tantra and that is kind of a joke in certain circles. You bring that up and people snicker and stuff. And I hadn't even thought about it since I was a kid. You know, I was a 90s kid and I remember when that was going on. It was like, ha, 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 the guy who sings Roxanne is into tantric sex, almost as if it was yes. a, a bad thing, which seems to me just positively absurd uh, in the rearview mirror today. It just seems absolutely crazy. What I'd like to know more about how your thinking on Tantra has evolved and, and what is your sort of general view of that as you talk to me today? One of the things that's wrong with sex out there, there are many things that's wrong with the general sex that's going on. But the main thing is that everybody thinks their sex has to be red hot. Everybody wants red hot sex. And we know what red hot sex is because we've seen it in things like fatal attraction. You see someone across the room in a movie, you know, they're in a movie and the pheromones are raging and they rush up to each other and they have sex, weirdly standing up, how on earth that's possible. But anyway, that, so they have this sex standing up and then five minutes later, you know, they're both screaming with pleasure and then they're having multiple simultaneous orgasms. Um, and And... What's happened is that that role, that model of sex that we see on TV all the time, and of course in the porn movies and in the porn all the time, with these Oscar-winning performances of porn actresses based on nothing at all, um, you know, and then young people think that that's what sex is, this red-hot model with this woman screaming with pleasure. Uh, and so, and, every, and everybody has been trapped into that. And then women think they're broken and men think they can't achieve it. One publisher actually asked me to write a book called Why Is No One Having Sex Anymore? Yeah, I, I, I want to get to that later. So hold that thought. And so, so yeah, so, but, so, so the, I'm coming around to saying, so this red hot sex myth kills people's sex lives because they might have red hot sex when they first meet their new partner. But then the man sorry to go into stereotypes but the, okay so the woman has two children she's got two children under five the man is working all the hours god sends in order to support his his wife and two children or she's working and he's at home but whatever it is and, and then the, you know the, somebody's sick that their best friend dies of cancer you know the mother's in a home and you know there's all that pressure of course people can't keep up this red hot sex model but because because they're too exhausted, they get into bed at night, they want to go to sleep, mm. <laughs> understandably, most of the time. But then what happens is people think their sex life is over because they're not having this red hot sex. And what I keep talking about is that sex can also be 
turquoise with a hint of ochre with a little green. You know, you can if you're having loving touch and intimacy, then that's beautiful. We don't have to be chasing orgasms every single night when we when we start to have sex. You know, the bodies can be aroused for half an hour and it can be beautiful and intimate and touching and then people can go to sleep. But if both partners all the time feel this pressure to be producing climaxes every single time they get into bed, uh, you know, it's, it's a pressure that, that nobody wants. And, it, and I think it's an actual blocker to loving intimacy. Sometimes orgasms are going to happen and sometimes they're not going to happen. But please don't make it a demand in the bedroom. So to get back to your question then, Tantra and that whole, all that tradition explores a wide range of sensations that can happen in the body. So I'm all for, for broadening the experiences. I mean, I make a joke in the book that I go to one introduction evening and they're talking about 11 different kinds of orgasm, 10 of which I haven't had. Um, but I mean... But there is a whole range of, uh, of experiences that, that, that we can have that most people are not even exploring because we're stuck in this pattern of, of thinking that sex has to be a certain way. So I'm jumping up and down saying, please, can we broaden our experience? Can we not just go to the Indian restaurant every single time and order the vindaloo? What every single time? What about all the other flavors that are available? You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to continue with the food analogy, I, I think I told you I live in northern Thailand and a lot of northern Thai dishes are very complicated. But there's all these sort yes. of competing flavors, competing textures. There's like salty and sweet and firm and soft and like there's it's very it's very complex. Um, but when it works together, it's this remarkable balance of, uh, you know, perfect harmony. And I kind of think of like having a good sex life is a little like that. You don't want to be having yeah. the same experience over and over again, which you say in the book, and is so true. So many couples in long-term relationships, they find the one thing that they, seems to work, and they keep doing that forever, you know, endlessly. And obviously, yeah. that's going to lead to boredom. It, it's so important. Yeah. You know, it's such a cliche to say, mix it up. But I think a better way to put that is, is explore, you know, commit to constant exploration and, and trying different things and exploring different kinds of sensation and different rhythms and different positions and different vibes, you know, like, yeah. Yes. And that doesn't mean uh, as what that has now come to mean that you're forced to develop an interest in BDSM. Absolutely. Because because that's one of the things that that's one of the, the ways in an already bad situation, the whole 50 shades thing put more pressure on couples. It's like, well, if you want to do this, then that's great. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. And then you're not very sexually exploratory, as if that were the only form of sexual exploration possible. But absolutely not. It's not this, you know, not everybody wants to be tied upside down, you know, or whipped or, you know, th that's not everybody's cup of tea. If they, you know, I mean, if people want to do that with their, with their long term partners, then that's fine. But there's lots of much. Uh, it's not necessarily very sustainable. And what I'm interested in is the deepest, richest uh, possible definition of sexuality my one of the tantra teachers in the book says um one of the nice ways of knowing whether you have good sex is how you feel the following day hmm. if you feel that you've had a wonderful cherishing you know you feel cherished you feel loved you feel happy you feel that you've been seen you feel that the other person's been seen you feel like you had a wonderful connection 
then then that's good sex if you're feeling cherished if you know I, i'm like bring can we bring back the phrase making love can we bring <laughs> yes we can, can. We absolutely <laughs> So rather than just, you know, the experience a lot of people have, which frankly, they feel like they've been fucked um, and that's not necessarily something. And then and then, of course, there's pain. They can literally feel pain as well as having feel that, you know, so. Yeah. So we need a lot more making love going out there. So I'm glad your podcast is going out to lots of people. <laughs> Me too. They, they can think about this. Yeah. I mean, you know, it seems so I want to talk about. You talk about an epidemic of sexlessness that you've discovered through soliciting feedback and, and comments from people on social media and that. Yes, and yes. I found that very surprising. So I'm 30 and it seems like everyone I know, everyone around me is swiping left and swiping right furiously. But it seems to me that a lot of people are having just, I promise this is the last food analogy, <laughs> but they're having, okay. they're having junk food sex. You know, it's the sex you have at 1.30 in the morning when you're half drunk and it feels great for a second, but you regret it immediately after. It seems like I see a lot of that, um, more so among women, but also among men. But you talk in the book about an epidemic of sexlessness, which I found really surprising. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that and, and how you see that? Like, why do you see an epidemic of, of sexlessness? Well, we kind of touched on that before, didn't we? Uh, in a little earlier. I think what happens is yes, there's a lot of junk food sex going on out there when you're when you're in your 20s and 30s. But then eventually a couple will get together because you know the the myth of the the nuclear family that we're supposed to find one person and be with that person forever and everything's supposed to be marvelous. I mean for some reason people keep on doing it this marriage thing. Mm. <laughs> we might wonder we might question why but that's a different that's a different podcast. <laughs> but they go on doing it. So so they've had all this junk sex and then they get together with someone they that they really love. And then they move in with them or they marry them. And then, first of all, we hit the problem that we were just talking about, that they want it to go really, really well. So they're not necessarily, not necessarily able to have the, the real depth of honest communication in their sex life because they want that person to know that they've chosen the right person, right, mm. and that the sex is going to be really good. So there's huge pressure. This is the person you're going to be having only sex with this person for the rest of your life. It's certainly got to work. Um, and so often what happens is the woman will get into this pattern, as I said earlier on, of, of, of deception of the man by pretending that she's having more pleasure than she is or worse, faking orgasms. She's not giving him authentic feedback. Um, women are ve women are very guilty of this because as I said, we said this right. earlier and then eventually she will rebel against her own deception. It's not a rebellion against him necessarily although she's also angry with him illogically because he's not christian from 50 shades of gray uh, he's supposed to be he's supposed to be psychic and he's supposed to understand how to give her pleasure without her having understood this herself and being able to communicate it to him he's just supposed to know right. <laughs> women are very guilty of expecting men just to know how to give them pleasure it's you know it really is the cinderella complex so so A, she's angry with him for not being superhuman and psychic. Um, and secondly, she's angry with herself because she's deceiving him and she's lying with herself. And so eventually she can't do this anymore. 
she can't deceive him anymore. So then she starts to make up a million and one reasons why she doesn't want to have sex anymore. Um, and it might be, you know, obviously there's a period after after childbirth where they don't necessarily where women don't necessarily want to have sex or so. And then this gets compounded and then resentment sets in and then one or the other of them will go off and maybe have an affair in order to rediscover their sexuality, not necessarily because they hate their partner, but because they feel lost and confused and they think there's something wrong with them or the woman thinks she's broken. So she wants to have sex with another man to find out whether she really is broken or the man is just frustrated. So it's a mess. And then what happens, of course, because of the financial realities that we all live in now, often couples that are unhappy or they're in a sexless marriage, they can't leave each other because they've got two children and they're living in the same house. And so you end up with these sexless marriages. Uh, There's a lot of around. Which is really depressing to me. (laughs) That's that's really sad to hear. It is, but but there's a simple there's a there is a but there is a solution which I'm offering in in the sensation book, which is get real. Excuse me, my neighbour's cat. He always comes in when I do a podcast, and what he's saying is, it's not all about the humans. It's not all about the humans. That's that's what he wishes to communicate to the listeners. Is the cat there's in others, heat? There's other species. No, he's just saying hello. But he just wants he wants us to, he wants to remind us all right. <laughs> that there are animals on the planet too, and we should stop just thinking about ourselves. Cat lives anyway, matter. It, cat li- or animal lives matter. Animal too, lives yes. matter. Um, now I've completely lost what I was saying. <laughs> you were uh, you were just getting to the solution. I'm on the edge of my seat here. Other than oh, reading your wonderful book, Sensation. Well, but the reason that no, but but the reason that I'm pointing the book Sensation points to the solution, which is finding a different way through, which is enriching the sex life with the person that you love. And what the book does is it looks at the path forward. So say you're a woman listening to this podcast and you're unhappy with your sex life and you're unhappy with your, you're just unhappy with everything. So what I did, sexually that is, what I did is I then went on a journey for a year to learn about sexuality. Now, anybody can do this. So instead of leaving your partner or having an affair or never having sex again, please don't abandon, don't give up sex for the rest of your life. You know, don't live a life without pleasure. This news just out, the body is designed for pleasure. The body is not designed for dieting and exercise and yoga classes and looking in the mirror and thinking that you're too overweight or too thin or, you know, the body's body's designed, we're covered in nerve endings from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet that give pleasure to the body. So please, let's experience pleasure in this lifetime. We're going to be dead soon. So don't give up on, on having a nourishing sex life. And if there are problems, find ways forward. So what I do in the book is, as a woman, I start off with women's workshops. And, you know, there I look at, um, well, there are lots of things that you do in women's workshops, but you look at, you know, your relationship with yourself. And and I don't know how much time you have for me to go into what happens on a, on a women's workshop when you're learning about sexuality. But then I do, and then I go on a couple's workshop, and then my partner and I work with this organization that, as I said, specifically to studies female arousal and female pleasure. And then we talk and then we meet Tantra teachers and we study in a tantric environment. So there are all kinds of ways forward other than 
BDSM or have an affair or never have a sex life. There is another path. Right. I mean, that's one of the main, I would say the main message that I took from the book is when we think of someone, if someone is trying to maximize sexual pleasure, particularly I think if they're a man, they might picture someone like Hugh Hefner or, or someone who sees multiple women for, you know, for the rest of their lives. It seems to me that one of your messages in the book that I think is absolutely crucial and really timely, I didn't read the book as a advocating monogamy for everyone. That's not, not how I read the book at all. It's more like you can absolutely live a life of maximal sexual pleasure with one person. You don't need the affair. You don't need Tinder. You don't need a singles bar or whatever. You know, it, it's, it's possible and people are doing it you know of course of course because we 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 want to learn i mean one of the things i've learned on the sex scene since i've been talking in some sexual contexts is the number of people that are saying well why do i need a man i've got a vibrator Ugh. i mean come on <laughs> yeah you know what we're, we're looking what what has happened it, it's as if we're not even aiming at a deep level of connection of love and 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 intimacy and connection and of course the more you get to know someone the richer and the deeper that the relationship can go and the deeper the pleasure and the more somebody understands you of course it's it it let's think deeper in enrichment in a relationship and no of course i'm not i'm not offering i'm not advocating monogamy for everyone of course in fact at one point as you remember in this book i i'm living in a polyamorous community and it was visiting a polyamorous community that i lived in for 10 days and it was fascinating but i personally am in a monogamous relationship and i know a lot of my readers are in monogamous relationships because i'm coming from a spiritual readership so that's you know i know that a lot of people are in that group and as i say a lot of people are going to uh, are intending to marry and so if we are going to marry then how as a population are we going to have sexual relationships that are going to work for the next 50 years let's take this promise seriously let's not just say oh yes i'm going to be faithful to you forever i haven't a flipping clue how i'm going to do that but I just stand up in church in front of everyone and make that promise. It's this bizarre thing that people do. And then they and then they don't explore these areas. And then they wonder why their sex life isn't working, because they're not looking at ways to deepen and enrich that relationship with one person. I'm just scanning over my questions here, and this hour is just flying by. I have so much I want to ask you. But one, one question I wanted to ask, and I'm, I'm not sure it's an entirely fair question or easy to answer, but... I'm curious about if there was a moment in the book when you're researching this or since the book that's been sort of your biggest revelation in terms of the way you think about sex. Like, did you have, you know, what was the big aha moment for you, would you say? I think to re to refer to what I was speaking to earlier in terms of the red hot thing. I think one of my red hot, one of my realizations was in realizing how much even I, in the context of writing this book, uh, was, was in a sense, I've also been brainwashed to go for red hot. So, so it was as if, I mean, like in real life, I'm not only interested in floor hugging red sports cars or I'm not interested in the loudest music or the hottest dish. I'm actually interested in subtlety. I'm interested in art. I'm interested in music. I'm interested in a, in a range of experiences. And when my Tantra teacher started to talk about 
listening for the most subtle sensations rather than, you know, can we have the extra large vibrator that plugs in the wall, <laughs> which is what a yeah. lot of people in the sex scene are doing. And I think it's just to pause you for one moment, because I think this is really important. It's important to uh, to be clear about this, too. And you talk about this in the book, like training your body to feel those very, very delicate sensations. It, it takes time, right? Because I think some people try these practices and they get discouraged because they don't feel anything right away. But it, it takes time, right? Well, it it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, like, like the, the clitoral stroking practice, uh, a man is encouraged to, to stroke the clitoris, I, and I describe this fully in the book, but he's encouraged to stroke the clitoris with the first finger of his non-dominant hand, specifically because it's, he's less likely to, to press too hard, so he's more likely to stroke really sensitively with a non-dominant finger, and to stroke with no more pressure than, he would, than you'd stroke your eyelid. So, you know, that's a very light touch. Now, what happens with a very light touch is all the nerve endings come alive. They, they wake up. It's, it's extraordinary. Like another of the favorite things in the book that we did in the couples workshop was where the man has a, has a, a long feather or the woman and you rub it very, very lightly over the, over the, the skin and, very, and you move it very slowly and very lightly. The body judders with pleasure. <laughs> it's mm. extraordinary the pleasure that that can that is that is produced in your body with a very 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 light touch, and and I think you know that would be as a whole you know that would be in in a summary realizing that there can be more less is more often. Yes. It's Absolutely. not more is 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 more. I mean, we're obsessed with it as a society. And we know that it doesn't lead to, to happiness in any area. I mean, more money, more success, more that, you know, it's, it's just, no, it, we're not happy like that. It, it doesn't work. And certainly in a sexual context, the most beautiful moments and, and also how, how rich it is. Yes. I mean, I was astounded by some of the sensations in my own body that I had no previous experience of at all because I'd been so busy uh, for seven years in my marriage doing, you know, orgasm chasing, orgasm chasing sex. Mm -hmm. And it, it's very, it can be very limiting to, the, to, to exploration of the depth and beauty of what the body is capable of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I one, think of the, one of the things, on. just, to, sorry, just to freak out the men that are listening, one, <laughs> one of the most beautiful exercises that we did, and actually my partner chose this exercise, not at my instigation, he chose it himself, was something called the 30-day challenge where a man chooses to not ejaculate at all, either through masturbation or with his partner for 30 days. And he chose that exercise. And what was so fascinating, apart from the fact that he would send me text messages, you know, like a little boy, day 14, you know, <laughs> I, think, I think this is a record since puberty. But, but what was so wonderful was that when we made love during that time, he was really forced to slow down and to really focus on sensation in his body and in my body. And so his, his, attention and his awareness to the sensation became far more attuned because he wasn't just you know chasing the climax either for him or for me so it was a it was like a complete 
readjustment of the way that we made love and and really the connection was particularly beautiful during during that challenge yes. during that time i mean i have so much to say and our time's running out but speak for anyone listening to this speaking as a man who has done some of those practices and who actively practices um withholding uh, ejaculation not necessarily orgasm my god i mean once you get out of that mindset of chasing orgasms even just experimenting with you know say mm -hmm. if, if you have sex four times in a week like twice of two of those times maybe don't uh ejaculate that will change your sex life even just that simple act alone i mean there's i could go on about that but that is so Absolutely. important i mean there, there's a lot in your book about both women and men sort of uh, short-selling their sexuality, it mm. consistently amazes me how many men don't know that they have the ability to separate orgasm from ejaculation, how many men don't perform male Kegel exercises, all of these things mm. that are just, I see it as essential, especially for your long-term sexual health and uh, exploring greater pleasure. I mean, I think I should do an episode just talking, ranting about that stuff because it, it, it's, it's insane to me that more guys don't know about this stuff. I mean, yes. I, I know you have, you don't have gr uh, great feelings about Mantak Chia, the guy who wrote the multi-orgasmic, what is it? The multi-orgasmic couple. Multi-orgasmic man. But yeah, the multi-orgasmic okay, man multi was a... man and the yeah. multi-orgasmic couple. No, no, it's, it's only for one reason. The one reason is not, I think he can actually be really useful for men. Mm. But what I don't, what I dislike in his teachings, there's only one point I dislike about his teachings, that whilst his, whilst his training for men is excellent, his training for women always starts with the assumption that the woman's broken. So right. for the man, it's practical sexual exercises about how to do that, how to separate the orgasm from the ejaculation. For the woman, it's always, what was your formative sexual experience? Right. And right. My, my theory about that is that the whole discipline of psychology all the way back to Freud, uh, I think men used to expect women to work like a man sexually. And if she doesn't, then obviously she's broken. And then I, the male psychologist, are going to sit down and discuss what's wrong with her because you know it didn't necessarily dawn on them that maybe women's sexuality was just more complex and more interesting and more profound and just because we don't go off like a firework after you know after five minutes of being stimulated that doesn't necessarily mean we're broken um and and some of Mantak Chia's and and that assumption not just him but a broad spectrum in the sexual arena that we need to start with what went wrong with our sex life when we were six um I don't necessarily go along with that because there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to deepen and enrich the sex life that are pleasure led, for example. And again, orgasmic meditation, you can have it, because it doesn't involve penetration. It's very it's a pleasure led way of leading women back to pleasure in the body that is not sitting down on a sofa and talking about why you don't like sex. It's a far more interesting and enjoyable way of reintroducing pleasure into your body. And that book is Slow Sex by Nicole Daydon. Yeah. 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 I mean, I bring up Mantak Chia and, and I haven't read his stuff for women, but that was a game changer for me. I think I read that when I was like 20 and I think I've given away about half a dozen copies or something. But yeah, it, right. it just we're all short selling our sexuality, it seems to me, men and women alike. I have about 20 more questions I wanted to ask you, but <laughs> with the, our remaining time, I'm, I'm curious about where you're at now, I mean, sometime after publishing the book and you've had a lot of time to, to talk about this stuff and reflect, like, do you ever, what are your questions that you're sort of dealing with now? Like what, 
what more do you need or want to explore at this point around sex? To be honest, the 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 only difference between when I started the book and, and my year's exploration is at the beginning of the book, I knew nothing at all about anything. And at the end of the book, I feel I know what I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. But I still know nothing. I mean, I know how fantastically, I mean, as I say, like the 11 forms of orgasm. I was talking about them the other night and I have a little list and I read them out when I do talks in front of an audience for comic value. Um, Because I I haven't, for example, the G spot you know, it's still out there. It's still up for discussion whether all women even have G spots because Mm -hmm. the different, all women have, have gatherings of nerve endings more in different places. So some women have more around that spot and some women have more around the perineum and some have more around the anus and some have more around the clitoris. So, you know, but then, so, so that's the, the the G spot orgasm. And then there's the A spot orgasm and the, the the valley orgasm. I mean, please don't ask me what a valley orgasm is. I have no idea. (laughs) And as for the A spot orgasm, I'm still looking for the G spot. I mean, and and this question about somebody told me that women are only able to have anal orgasms if their kundalini is open. I mean, for heaven's sake, I, I, I have got no idea how to open my kundalini. So, so I think what I know is what are we all doing with our lives when we could be exploring this? I mean, and it's, it's a, it, it is a tragedy of epidemic proportions that we have this wonderful thing that we're walking around and that is capable of this exceptional pleasure. And so many couples are not, uh, are not even expressing simple affection with each other. You know, the man is afraid to stroke the woman's arm in bed at night in case she takes it as a come on and she doesn't want to have sex. So he, he can't even touch her. Or the other way round. I mean, it's it's a, it's a disaster. So so yes. Yeah, so what I know is that I could spend the rest of my life studying this, and I sure wish I'd started it when I was thirty, like you. Good for you. All right. Cheers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say for anyone listening to this, and and truly, it's not. I'm not saying this just because I have you on the line here. Like any couple interested in in exploring their sexuality more, if they want to get more of their sex life, I would strongly, strongly recommend. Um, your book sensation because I really like the way you write it. It feels very unpretentious, very, very down to earth. It's, it's funny. It's very, you know, it's, it's an easy read, but it's a very provocative Mm. read. And I really appreciate you for writing it. I have one more thing that I just, I I need to get to because one of the the parts of your book that I found heartbreaking, and I've certainly encountered this in, in my personal life as well on several occasions is the negative relationship that a lot of women have with their vagina, which that to me yeah. is a tragedy of epic, epic proportions. And can I just say, yes. as a man who loves women, I love vaginas, all different shapes and sizes. And I mean, vaginas are absolutely gorgeous. Vulvas, vulvas, vulvas. Vulvas, right? Vaginas, the inside bit. Yes. The vulva yes. is the outside bit. Right. Of course. But you mean yes. all of it? You love all of it. You're a heterosexual man, you but you love all of it. Absolutely. And I think you know, may, I don't know. I feel like most guys would feel that way that they don't need a certain vulva that looks a certain way but what is your take on why women have such negative relationships with their vaginas is it simply connected to just the general sexual shame that a lot of women are made to feel um well i've thought about this a lot and i i in the book i examine where did it come from in my case 
where did I decide? Because it seems that 98% of women think that they'll think there's something weird about their vulva. More specifically, um, the uh, a woman has outer lips and inner lips. And with the majority of women, the inner lips protrude. Um, and they can be larger or smaller. Um, but the women that are employed in porn magazines, the, the porn magazines like a neat look on a woman. So they tend to choose the minority of women that don't have protruding inner lips. They just have a very like a like a Barbie doll. You know, there's literally a slit. There's nothing that sticks out at all. And so then what you've got is you've got the majority, the 98 percent of women that don't look like that, think that there's something wrong with them and they find the inner lips ugly. And certainly if I if I go back to my puberty and I think about that, how did that happen? How did I come to that conclusion? I mean, I remember thinking as a, as a young child, I, I really remember this thought thinking, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Because this is the bit, this is a sort of sack like a man's balls that has fallen in my case. And I must be, it must mean that I'm, I've got, I'm more like a man or something. There's obviously something wrong with me. I remember thinking this. Now, this isn't a conversation that a young girl has with anybody. She doesn't have this with her girlfriends. She doesn't have it with her mother. She doesn't see anything that is going to educate on that. Although, if you're listening and you have an Instagram account, the vulva gallery, vulva.gallery. It's an extraordinary Instagram account. And every day, people, women send pictures of their vulvas and the woman makes a painting of them. And every day she shows a different painting. And it's extraordinary because obviously women have vulvas that are, that are as diverse as our faces and they're all different. But because women don't know that, that's why labiaplasty, removing the inner lips surgically, God forbid, is the largest, is the fastest growing form of cosmetic surgery. Just unbelievable. Now, for fuck's sake. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a lie. It's another myth that, that we're supposed to look a certain way and we're supposed to look very neat. And then, and then, of course, we're supposed to all be shaved and, oh, my God, it goes on and on and on and on. So there's a lot of work to be done. But, I, you know, I got to the point when I thought, well, I've just got to be honest about this in the book. I mean, I thought, do I really want to talk about how I feel about my vulva in the book? And then I thought, well, you know, if I, if I don't talk about that, then I might shortchange some woman. And indeed, even in a talk, I talk about this in front of an audience. And when the notes come forward with the questions, sometimes people just send me feedback. And this one woman wrote, I'm 58. And until this moment, hearing your talk, I've always thought there was something wrong with my vulva. Thank you. I mean, it, 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 it yes, it's, um, it's another myth. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll just say, you know, one more time, the book is absolutely tremendous. And I really want to take a moment to honor you for writing it and for taking that chance thank and for, for putting yourself out there. And, you know, for men and women alike, it's a tremendous read. And I, I really thank you for writing it. And thank you so much for your time today. This was one of the most fun conversations I've had around sex. So thank, thank you so much, Isabel. Thank you very much for inviting me. there you have it congratulations on making it all the way through <laughs> right through our talks about ejaculation and orgasm and all the rest uh thank you to those brave souls who are listening to this right now and i, I really hope you enjoyed that conversation uh, as much as i enjoyed having it with isabel she's a 
a really great person to talk to. And once more, I highly recommend you check out her book, Sensation by Isabel Lozada. You can find it on Amazon and uh, pretty much anywhere, I think, most online marketplaces for books. And just a note that if you want to learn more about Isabel and her work or Sensation or anything we talked about in today's episode, please check out the show notes. You can find those at zfstockhill.com slash sex. Some of you have been wondering what the deal is with my publishing schedule because it's been a little wacky the first couple weeks. Just letting you know that after today's episode, you can expect new episodes most, uh, I say most because, you know, I might take Christmas off or I might take the odd week off if I have something going on, but you can expect new episodes of Humans in Love most Tuesdays. However, you might see me throw out the odd bonus episode or two during the rest of the week. A quick note before I let you go that you probably know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Please, if you get 30 seconds, go on iTunes. Be sure you subscribe to the show and leave a rating and a review. Those ratings and reviews are absolutely crucial for the show, and they'll provide the boost I need to keep going. Thank you to everyone once again for listening to this. Your support is very, very much appreciated. Your ears are very, very much appreciated. And before I let you go, remember that life is short. So go out there and have some life-affirming, beautiful, joyous, uh, all different types of wonderful sex. Thank you for listening, guys. I'll talk to you very soon.